Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. My buddy found a buck on his hit list, put a stalk on him, made an awesome shot, and was so pumped that this bad boy wanted a ride home in his truck. It was his favorite harvest of the year. Awesome. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Ron Spomer Outdoors Podcast. This is a little bit different approach to this show. I've gotten some interesting comments from folks about cliches in hunting and how they're sort of up to here with them, like the one I just read to you. (laughs) So I thought we would talk about some of the cliches and how we feel about them. Here's a famous one from way back when. They were using this one when I was a kid. If it's brown, it's down. If it flies, it dies. Okay, chuckle, chuckle. I get it. Unfortunately, I think it has run its course, and it really doesn't do us any favors to be spouting that sort of stuff, especially around non-hunters. It just sounds a little bit crass and uncaring, shall we say, Um And really, how many of us are going to shoot everything that's brown and everything that flies? So, I don't know. How do you guys feel about that one? Now, here's one I used in that that initial reading. Take a ride in the truck. This is a, a clever line that someone came up with years ago when they shot a buck. They said that the buck wanted to take a ride in my truck. Meaning, of course, that you're going to take him home and butcher him and eat him and all the rest of it. So it was cute the first time it came out and maybe for the next 150, but I think we've, we've run the gamut on that one already too. So that's one that can probably go by the wayside. We need to come up with a fresh version. How about this one? I gave him a dirt nap. I know. I never liked that one. Shooting an animal and knocking it to the ground uh, and then saying that it is a dirt nap. Okay, somewhat clever, I guess, but I think it's just a little bit disrespectful. Took a dirt nap. I don't know. What do you think? I could be overreacting to some of this stuff just because of my age. 
Then there's the DRT. Oh, yeah, DRT. I don't like acronyms to start with in most cases, um, but dead right there, yeah, that's not I don't feel uncomfortable with it, but like the deer was dead right there, DRT, I guess. What the hey? Doesn't bother me that much, but this one does bother me. I smoked him. Smoked him. Oh, boy. Uh, someone was saying, I smoke turkeys. <laughs> I smoke ducks. I smoke my sausages, but I don't smoke my deer when I shoot him. I shoot him. So maybe that was not so good anymore. But then it might be better than hammered him. I get that one. I mean, it's like if you shoot a deer and and it dies instantly, it's like someone struck him with a hammer. So it makes a certain amount of sense. You hammered him. But it depends on how I think you express it, how you say it. Um, you know, you want to overdo that stuff and make it a little too clinical. But um, I don't know. How do you feel about how do you hammer one? Hmm. Then this one is the worst for me. I put the smack down on him. Oh, Lordy, that's as bad as bad boys. Put the bad boy in the truck after I put the smack down on him. What are we doing here? Is this a boxing match or a wrestling match or what the hey? So those are some of the uh, cliches used in hunting for the last 10 or 20 years that are driving me a little bit crazy. Um, what do you guys think? Let me know if these drive you crazy or if you think they're perfectly acceptable. And if you have any other ones that drive you nuts, we'll be happy to share them on our next episode. Now let's get to some of our questions and answers and such. Here's something from Mark. It says, Ron, I appreciate your willingness to try to define a true hunter. It's an ambiguous term to say the least. You've done a lot of traveling in your travels. What do you find to be some of the best conservation practices? It feels like there are so many different models uh, that different states and countries try to use. Oh, boy, that is a... A good question that probably deserves a long answer, Mark, and I don't know if I can just pull it off the top of my head here, but best conservation practices to me would be, uh, in one word, sustainable use. Well, that's two words. <laughs> in two words, sustainable use. And by that, I mean that we manage our wildlife populations in such a way that we can sustainably utilize that natural resource as nature intended in perpetuity. So it's just the, the opposite of exploitation and market hunting. And I think if more people understood hunting in that vein and conservation, I think we would have a, a lot broader acceptance of hunting. So in my travels, I have found in some locations, some sustainable use hunting management that was just outstanding. And the classic cases, I, I've said it many times, but I just have to say it again because it's so successful. And I've been there twice. Zambezi Delta Safaris in Hunting Kutata 11 in Mozambique. And Kutata 11 is the hunting block, Portuguese term. Um, and this hunting block is 500,000 acres. And back in the day, of course, it was crawling with game as all of Africa once was. And it lost it during their civil war in the 80s and into the early 90s because there was no management at all. All of the professional hunters were pushed out as this country was involved in a civil war. And everyone exploited the game. 
and they would shoot and poach everything for meat. They would even fly helicopters in from ships off the shore and mow stuff down from the helicopters and bring the meat into the ship to feed the sailors and whatnot. So they just pretty much wiped everything out. So when the, the new proprietor of this uh, operation came on board, a professional hunter, his name is Mark Haldane, he and a gentleman in Mozambique who was interested in this program and conservation and all, they looked at this cutata after the war was over and it was up for lease again as a hunting block and decided whether or not it would be worth their efforts to try to hunt on it again. Obviously, they've got to make a living doing this, but at the same time, they needed to have a lot of wildlife, so they're going to try to restore it. They did, and here was the program and why and how it worked. When they went and looked at the area from a helicopter, they didn't see much of anything. They counted about 1,200 buffalo in the whole area, maybe 30 sable, some of the other big animals like that, just a handful. So there was essentially nothing there to work with but a little bit of seed stock. Well, they started managing it as a hunting operation. And of course, you can imagine it was pretty difficult to get anybody to book a hunt with numbers that low. But a lot of interested trophy hunters, that's used as a a negative term these days, but it isn't, it shouldn't be, because these trophy hunters would pay big money for the chance to go in there and try to shoot one of the few remaining buffalo, and they only shot old males, so there was no drain on the population. Meanwhile, they controlled the poaching by using the monies brought in by the hunters to pay for this to hire local poachers to become anti-poachers because they knew how it was done. They knew where to find the snares and the traps and everything else. So they really cut down on the poaching. That gave those animals a chance to reproduce. And obviously, you know how animals produce. Every year, there's usually a production. With an elephant or something big like that, it takes longer than that. But generally, there's an annual crop coming in of fawns and calves. So by only shooting old males, they very quickly built that population up and they reintroduced some species that were had been exterminated from the area and they continued to work with local villagers to reduce any poaching. And they also provided game meat to the villagers so that they would have some sustainable use of the same products and wouldn't be enticed to go poaching and or buying poached meat, what they call bush meat. So they really cut down on the poaching and the populations really started to take off. So today, roughly 28 years after this process began, their buffalo herd has increased from 1,200 to more than 25,000. And the sable are up over 300,000 and the water bucks are over four or 5,000. And just the numbers like that are off the charts in just 28 years of annual hunting. So the hunting has been going on sustainably, and that's why I say sustainable use. If you don't use it sustainably, someone else is going to use it unsustainably, like the armies did when they were poaching it, like the poachers do who sell the bush meat in town, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not a lot different than, we'll say, farming in which you are an animal husbander who raises animals and harvests those animals or butchers them to uh, maximize what the land will produce for sustainable use. Your cattle herd doesn't disappear because you're eating calves and or yearlings and whatnot. You keep the heifers, you breed them, and you just, you maintain a sustainable population of animals. You can do it with chickens. You can do it with anything. And you can do it with wildlife. And that's the great thing. But people have to understand, 
This is the way nature works. So for conservation programs, that is the way to control the harvest. Never harvest more than nature can produce, reproduce on an annual basis. There are going to be some ups and downs with unexpected tragedies like floods and fires and drought and stuff. But you can manage the population by reducing the harvest or increasing the sales of tags and whatnot all and pretty much keep a balance. And you can also have predators involved in that. You just can't let any one particular population get unbalanced with the natural resources. And that brings up habitat. That is obviously a critical component. You have got to have enough of and quality of habitat to support these animals. And that's fairly easily done. It doesn't take too much to figure out what animals live in what habitats. You get grassland animals in grasslands and forest animals in forests and et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, those are the models that I think work very well. Now, there are some variations based on whether it's privately owned or whether you have complete control or it's a public resource in which they're squabbling over how someone should manage it, but it's all part of the program. So that's what I think, Mark. And I think that was a great question. I appreciate you asking it. Now, this is from uh, one of our patrons, Dan. Say, I've thought quite a bit about uh, the story you told in that one video you did about how big game hunters in Africa needed a big bore rifle with a heavy bullet in case of a charging elephant. <laughs> and the smaller bore rifles like the seven millimeter weren't as effective. All this talk about bullet energy, maybe it's not quite as much the energy as the mass of the bullet and how well it can keep up that energy. Hmm. Good point, Dan. You yourself have pointed it out before as to how arrows don't need much speed because they cut and they do a lot of damage. Could bear out some extra clarifying, and it makes sense with what little I recall of high school physics, but a heavier bullet wouldn't it do a better job? All the older stick in the muds abdicating heavier bullets may have been onto something. <laughs> I'd even go so far as to argue that this may be the reason some folks, yourself included, have seen less than impressive results from hunting with a 4570 on some occasions, particularly when using 200 to 300 grain bullets. It's going to go kind of slow for the bullet diameter, and it was designed for around a 405 grain bullet, so maybe that's part of the issue that you and Hootie Who have had in the last year or two. There was a question. Uh, Hootie Who is another YouTuber who's got a fun channel. You don't mind look him up sometime. Um, yeah, that's... Uh, kind of the classic argument there, Dan. Uh, a lot of folks are all about the big heavy bullet with a lot of momentum that will drive deep and they think it kills harder, better, faster. Then there's the other side of the argument and that's the hydrostatic shock, high fast bullet. Uh, high velocity, extremely fast and that bullet hits with so much a dramatic energy that's dispelled throughout the animal that it kills it instantly. Some of that happens. I don't know if it is technically hydrostatic shock that's doing it. Um, I do know that if you hit the central nervous system, it's lights out. So that could be what's happening on those hydrostatic shock incidents. I know you can sometimes get it with a chest hit that does not hit the spine or the brain. Um, but folks tell me that they suspect that that's that solar plexus nerve bundle center somewhere in the chest above the heart. I don't know exactly where it is or even how to find it, <laughs> but folks say that that's probably what's being hit because there are a lot of nerves that all sort of come together at that point. So it's getting pretty, pretty close to hitting the central nervous system. Maybe that's what's going on, but it's certainly not the energy because as I've often said, if energy from bullets killed game, you could make a paunch shot 
not hitting a vital organ, but landing in the paunch. And all the energy is absorbed by that animal, but it doesn't fall over dead. Nobody's ever, I don't think, shot an animal in the paunch and had it instantly die. They run off and you've got a problem on your hands. You've got to find them and shoot them again. So uh, there's no absolutes on that. But I've also shot animals with really big 50 caliber, 54 caliber bullets weighing 500 grains shot right through their chest and had them run off. Almost no energy transfer. Um, So what I've come down to on what actually kills animals is, of course, the hemorrhaging. You have to destroy the pulmonary cardio system so that it can't pump oxygenated blood to the brain to keep the brain cells alive. And the fact that you can do open heart surgery on people or even put in artificial hearts proves that you don't have to have your heart and lungs functioning all the time. Obviously, they put you on machines and things to keep the circulation going, but you can get away with several seconds to several minutes without that cardiopulmonary system functioning and still keep the brain alive and get the organism to live again um, or to continue living. But it's when those brain cells die that life is definitely extinguished. Does a heavier bullet do that better than a lighter bullet at a higher velocity? Sometimes, perhaps, but one thing you definitely can depend on on the heavier bullets is deeper penetration, all else being equal. You've just got more momentum in that bullet. You might not have as much energy, but you've got more momentum. That means the bullet's going to continue driving and driving deep. And what does that do? It just tears more vital tissue to increase hemorrhaging for faster demise, I guess. So, I am not convinced that shooting a 300 grain from a 4570, which I've done on several occasions and not gotten dramatic results, is because the bullet was too light. I mean, it's a 300 grain bullet. <laughs> and I've gotten much better results with a, oh, say a seven millimeter bullet from a seven by 57 Mauser that that bullet was only 150 grains. Same animal, same chest shot, and it died a lot faster with that than it did with the big 300 grain bullet. But I think you're definitely on to something here. How you find the exact balance uh, on it, I don't know. I think we're going to debate this the way folks have been debating it since at least 1925, probably way back farther than that. But I heard it all my life growing up, and I think the debate will continue. But it's, it's obvious that lighter calibers can be very effective as well as heavier calibers. But with the, the Africa stuff and the dangerous game, of course, is that everyone is thinking a big old mean hooked horned buffalo is coming at me. I want to stop him. I need what's called a stopping rifle, which is usually a big 45, 47, 50 caliber, something that's throwing a big, wide, heavy bullet with a lot of energy and momentum that is potentially going to stop that animal. My argument is that there's no such thing because I've read way too many stories about buffalo charging professional hunters and their clients who then shoot that buffalo with multiple 500 green bullets that should stop them and the buffalo just keeps coming. Good solid chest hits one after another as many as eight and the animal's not stopped. Are you going to kill it a little sooner than you would with a 22-250? (laughs) Probably. But I don't think you can count on any bullet from any shoulder fired rifle to stop a big animal like that. 
unless you hit the central nervous system and or break down the essential architecture that keeps them moving, which would be the bones, the major driving bones. So that's my take on the big bullets there, Dan. But we will continue to debate and discuss this, I think, forever. (laughs) All right. Here is from Phantom Wire. And he asks, my dad was an extreme marksman, and he had also a very good understanding of the rifle itself. His favorite was his M1 Garand, which he carried and fought with from landing in Normandy, fighting through the hedgerow country. And when he was put in charge of the rifle gun squad, he fought within a day of breaking into Bastogne. Well, thanks to him, we're here today speaking English. Dad's knowledge of even the steel firearms were made better. This doesn't make sense. Dad's knowledge of firearms or where they were made mattered to him. Dad's pick was Belgium Browning. I was in my firearms training in 1966, and I think that I was hoping for a Ruger semi-auto like many kids had. But when Christmas came and I saw a packaged rifle under the tree, I ripped it open and was disappointed. It wasn't a Ruger. It was a Belgium Browning 22 t T-Bolt, and it was set up with a peep sight. I didn't complain, but I was confused until... We brought that rifle into the firearms training class, and almost every parent came over and stared at it. We didn't have a lot of money, but when it came to firearms, Dad never chose anything but the best. And to him, the Belgian Browning was the best. (laughs) Well, I guess that's not a question after all, but it is a fun little story. Yeah, I want to thank Phantom Wire for sending that one in. Yeah, there are and always have been folks who appreciate high quality and when they see it and recognize it and think that that is it boy they'll pay the extra price to get it Um, and then there are others who say yeah close enough you know they all work I can get by with a, a less expensive model and fortunately we have access to firearms in all those categories you know you can get yourself a good functioning brand new rifle for around five hundred dollars sale prices might get down to as little as four hundred dollars and they will shoot surprisingly accurately and then of course you can spend your money as far as you want to send it they'll take it and build you the fanciest rifle you could ever imagine so something for everyone and i really appreciate that about this country now, what do we have here? Hmm. This is uh, from Brian. He says, I use a Hawa 1500 in 270 Winchester for a rifle build. I'm going to run a 20-inch proof research barrel and a suppressor. That's getting to be fairly common these days, shorter barrels and suppressors. I have the ability to reload ammo, a 280AI or a 7PRC. Which should I choose and why? Aha. Uh-huh. My goal is hunting big game out west and Alaska and uh, out to shoot to 600 yards while standardizing my reloading around the seven millimeter calibers. Thanks and keep up the great podcast, Mr. Spomer. Well, thank you, Brian. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, Either one will do. Um, I can tell you that. I have not hunted yet with the 7PRC. I've shot it fairly extensively at targets out to a mile, but I've used the 280 Ackley Improved. Uh, quite a bit. I've taken sheep with it, mule deer, whitetails, uh, coyotes, elk, moose, um, great little cartridge. The, let's just discuss what it is. A lot of folks are confused by the 280AI. It's becoming a lot more popular than it ever was, but it's not all that well known yet. So you take the 30 out 6 you neck it down to 7mm, and you have the 280 Remington, roughly. 
And the 280 Remington never really took off. It's a great cartridge, but it just never really took off. Then when you acleize it, make it an acle improved cartridge, what you do is you blow out the sidewalls so they're a little straighter. And instead of a 20 degree shoulder, you get a 40 degree shoulder, really pretty flat. And that does a couple of things. It increases the powder capacity and it tends to keep that powder and the gases inside of the case during ignition. This is what the advantage is to that. You increase the powder capacity a little bit, but you also keep the burning powders inside of the case a little bit longer. Rather than giving them a nice flow on out into the throat and the barrel, you sort of roil things up inside and get a complete burn or a more complete burn inside of the chamber of the cartridge itself. Uh, whether that's a huge deal or not, I don't know. I like the AI cartridges because they sort of extend the life of your hand loads. The cases, you don't have to trim as often because you're not getting a flow of the brass to stretch out the case when you fire. Um, you increase the velocity maybe 100 feet per second. So what the 280 Ackley Improved AI does is comes within about 100 to 150 feet per second of the same velocities you get with a 7 millimeter Remington Magnum. But you've got essentially a 30-06 length and diameter case with which to do it in a fairly light, handy little rifle. So that's what the 280 AI is. Now, the 7 millimeter PRC is the latest from Hornady, and that one is maximized for precision shooting. It doesn't go any faster or perhaps a little bit faster than the 7 millimeter Remington Magnum, but it's not a belted case. It's a little bit fatter case. It fits in the 30-06 length standard action rifles, and it's designed to handle those really long high BC bullets. So it's your new modern, fully modern cartridge tweaked to be just as good as they can make it. In addition, the rifle chambers for it are specced out to be essentially match grade. Whether or not the manufacturer have every rifle makes them that way, I don't know, but that's the whole idea with it. So you've got potential to have a more accurate rifle with factory ammunition from the get-go. So you're going to get essentially 7 millimeter Remington Magnum performance out of the 7 PRC with enhanced accuracy and the longer bullet you could shoot. The 280 AI, depending on what you get it chambered in and what they did for a twist rate on it, can easily handle quite well 175 grain bullets. I've done most of my hunting with it using 150 grain bullets, um, usually Barnes tipped triple shocks, or actually started off using the original Barnes bullet in it and had wonderful results, half MOA. So um, it can shoot very well. And with those bullets and the weight retention of those bullets at during terminal performance, just outstanding. And that's what I took my moose with and my elk and everything else. But you can use 160 grain bullets, 175 grain bullets. And it would, with the right twist rate, it'll even stabilize the 180s and the new 195 grain bullets. But you're going to have to get a pretty fast twist rate to do it. You're never going to get your velocities out of, as high out of the 280 as the 7 PRC. Figure 100 to 200 feet per second slower. Now, as far as terminal performance goes, I don't think you're going to give anything up by using a slightly slower 280 AI. Um, it just doesn't work that way. You're going to launch that bullet more than fast enough to have more than enough energy to 
Tear the vitals when you get there. And that's what it all comes down to. Use the right bullet and put it in the right place. What the PRC will give you is a little bit more range. But these days, most of us use a laser rangefinder so we know exactly how far it is to the target. And then if we've memorized our ballistic trajectories, we know just how high to hold or to compensate, either by using another reticle in the scope or dialing. Or for the old uh, fashion guys holding over. <laughs> but it, it all works. So I don't think there's a real huge advantage in the PRC other than if you really want to extend your range past 600 yards. And I don't see any need to do that. And you specified 600 as kind of your max. So I think you could get by quite nicely with the 280 AI. What you would potentially gain is a little bit lighter weight rifle because depending on which action you buy or have the rifle built with. And you said you're going with a Howard 1500, and that's a pretty, you know, it's about like a, or Remington 700, pretty, pretty similar in the looks and function on that. So you can build a pretty lightweight rifle on that action. I don't know if that 7PRC will fit in the action. I'm thinking it probably will, but it is the fatter case size. It's uh, even fatter than the, um, seven rim mag because that seven rim mag has the belt on it and the seven prc doesn't so you want to look into that but beyond that i really don't think you need to be too concerned about either one they're going to both do the job um yeah take your pick personally gosh i don't know i have a 280 ai and i've used it so much that i probably stick with it but then again it would be kind of fun to play around with that 7 prc because it certainly has a potential to do just about anything you need to do in a hunting rifle with a seven millimeter hey guys i just wanted to let you know that we have a channel that's a paid channel called rso tv on which we can put some of the older videos we've done over the years that detail rifles and rifle performance and breaking them down and making repairs and the kinds of things that don't necessarily fly on commercial channels, but we can put it on RSO TV. And we also do more in-depth research on topics that we lightly cover here. So if you want to check some of that out, just go to my website, ronspomeroutdoors.com and look for RSO TV. Give it a click and see if you like it. Well, those were the questions for today, folks. Hey, I want to thank everyone for sending those in. Also sharing your stories about your dad and his Garand rifle. <laughs> there were some good stuff today, guys. Um, we're going to uh, look forward to doing some more of these um, overused cliche words. If you guys can send some more in, those could be kind of fun. So we'll uh, look forward to hearing from you. Until next time, this is Ron Spomer with his usual sign out, hunt honest and shoot straight.